Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. episode of that's what people do you are joined by me ryan mcgowan and as always james k how are you doing today buddy i'm really good thanks ryan i'm really <laughs> we haven't just spent the last 20 minutes talking about how shit we're feeling i'm, I'm great yeah we uh how are you <laughs> i am great no let's be honest we uh, could lie we could lie to the nice people but ugh. it's been rough it's been a rough... Uh... <laughs> it's, it's, it's January. It's January. I think that tells people everything they need to know. Yeah, I I, I am really not very well at all. So there's good, I've got a big hand, a big job on my hands tonight to, to edit this all together and edit out all my coughing and spluttering. So if I sound very different tonight or if I, I mess it up a bit, then uh, that's why. And uh, James, you've been feeling a bit poorly too. I've got a headache. I just feel shit. I just I can't be arsed with life at the minute, which is a sad statement, but it is what it is. Yeah. We'll we'll pull through soon. Yeah, I, I'm that bad. I've been given an, an asthma pump for the first time in my life. I'm 30 years old and they've given me an asthma pump. And I actually said to the doctor, I, went, I don't know how to use it. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't know. Just sort of pump and breathe, I guess. Apparently so. And then I, I did it at work and my boss, who, who has one, was like, no, you've done it wrong. I was like, okay, fine. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> um, yeah, Christ, with the way we're at right now, so it's all kind of big in the news at the moment, we're going to be conscripted in the army. They'll kick us out of in two weeks. They'll go, you can't hack it, mate. Just be moaning. <laughs> Just moaning. Oh, I will be cold. on the front line in fucking Russia or something, moaning my arse off. People will not want to be around me. In fact, I will get captured by the Russians on purpose and like I will dismantle them from inside with the amount that I'll just fucking moan about <laughs> was, the war. I was going to say that like having listened to you when we're playing Hell Let Loose or even like Call of Duty or something, that I think you'd beat them just by like putting them down just with the words and they go, oh, I'm done. I'm I would, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm really good at shit talking people. I'd, it just comes naturally to me. I think physic the physical combat I can leave to others, but a war of words 
come at me, bro. Broski, should I say? Su- surprisingly good at shit talking. But then the issue is, I'm also I'm I have no beef with like the Russian people. I have no issue with them. They're they'll be fighting because they've been told to fight. I've got no. I don't know. We'll see I what mean, happens. Uh, We're not going to get conscripted. No, I will refuse. No, re- realistically, it's not going to happen. We know that. Um, but but even still, I've, I've seen this a lot. It's obviously it's big in social media as well at the moment with like people going out going, oh, would, would you, would you, if you were conscripted, would you do it? And it's like, one, if you're conscripted, you don't really have a choice. But two, um, I, I understand why people wouldn't because this is whole like, okay, but the the beef we've got, the, the, the beef is with Putin and I'm not going to get a chance to fight him uh, if if the argument was would you join up and you get to have a one on one with Putin and if you lose we'll just put the next one in I'm like alright fine fair enough like you get a chance to be the guy but like yeah. I'm not being funny I, 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 I don't know but like I don't really fancy the idea of just fighting against old fucking Yatislav who is from some small little <laughs> fucking village who only joined up because you know there's not a lot going on and it's a, it's it's a it's three meals a day it's a roof over his head yeah why not um uh, where's the I don't understand the logic I get this whole like you know oh it's to to save this that the other and yeah alright fair that's cool but like isn't that what we got like secret services and shit for like uh, James Bond's yeah. supposed to just assassinate him on the quiet and be done with it yeah I've got no beef with Sergei from St. Petersburg yeah. like yeah, I, it's just I, I. You told me to watch Band of Brothers recently, so I watched the entire thing in two days. That's like ten hours of content over the span of two days. And I was watching it, being like, "This is really cool," but it's really sad. And it, you see it in like um, All Quiet on the Eastern Front, is it? No, it'd be the Western Front because it's the Germans. All Quiet on the Western Front. You know the German. Yeah, it yeah, was a yeah. book that Netflix did it. And at the start of the war, everyone's so pumped. They're like, "Oh, this is going to be fantastic. We're going to go to war with our friends. We're going to be heroes." And then by the end of it, the ones that survive are just like, what the fuck have we done? How many times has that happened in history and we just don't learn? Yeah. Just just grow. I'd literally want to get all the world leaders in the room. Just be like, grow the fuck up. Grow up. <laughs> Absolute dickheads. Just stop killing people. Yeah. I feel- Every, um, I, I hate the state of the world right now. Just don't be a, don't be a dickhead. I feel like just don't be a fucking dickhead. You should take all of the world leaders and put them in an escape room. Yeah. And just... Work it out, guys. Watch you chaos. To, you need to learn to work together. <laughs> yeah, I just it. I think it's crazy when you look at war and you think how many people have gone to war because of like a few people, well, and they've just sent millions of others to their death. If there's if there's one thing I've learned from Call of Duty, and there have been many things I've learned from Call of Duty, it's all the little quotes. Do you remember how many, when you die playing the game? And you get yeah, the yeah, yeah. That used to piss me. Oh, off. I love them because one of my favourite ones is. Oh, is it old men declare war, young men fight war? Yeah, something along the lines of that, and it's still true even today. Like I'm not being funny. I've seen some of these fucking red faced gammons on the, on like GB News recently, and they're like, "Oh, the trouble with these young people is they're all too busy making TikTok, blah blah blah, and they've got no sense of nationalism and all this kind of stuff." And you're like, "Fuck off!" One, you're not the one that's going to get called up. Two, if it were, you probably wouldn't do it yourself. But you're getting all biggy big bollocks because you won't get called up. It bothers me, man. It's a fucking nightmare. But what does all this have to do with the episode? We're talking about war. Yeah, we are talking about war. There's quite a lot of war in this episode. And what is funny is that there would be a lot of people uh, our age and whatnot who would have been conscripted into Napoleon's armies and would have just gone, 
oh, this is brilliant, and then died five seconds walking into battle because it was brutal. It's crazy. Um, but yes, no. Do not be cannon fodder. <laughs> Do not be cannon fodder. That's what they want us to be. Um, we are here. Yes, we are here. Part three of Napoleon after so long. Um, I, 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 I never realise these when I say it. I'm like, oh, I'm going to do that. And then it's massive, like you with your monarchy I was, bloody episodes. To be fair, I was thinking about this at, like just before we started recording. I thought when we started Napoleon 1, it was because of the movie and it was a whole thing. And now no one gives a fuck anymore, but we're still... <laughs> the movie's on fucking Sky Store. It's going to be on Blu-ray soon, do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, no one cares, but here we are. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> now... Um, Let's get into it, shall we? Let's just crack on. So where were we? Uh, part one, we, we sort of looked at a bit of uh, who Napoleon was growing up, learning the military, that kind of vibe. Uh, part two, uh, we started looking at things like his relationship with Josephine, which was a bit weird. Um, we looked at his Italian campaign, the kind of thing that really made him the kind of general that he will become, and his terrible, terrible fucking... Uh, uh, trials in egypt where he decided to pretend to be muslim wear a, a turban and they got scared when they wanted to give him a circumcision um so let's do it right let's finish off this mammoth story about arguably the greatest military general history has ever produced we last left napoleon on french soil once again having abandoned his men in egypt after a horrendous campaign that did nothing to further any french cause the best it did was give the British a whole bunch of Egyptian booty to put into the British Museum and gave Admiral Nelson something to shoot at in the Mediterranean. But things are about to work in his favour. Not only has he managed to spin his Egyptian campaign into a wonderful success, he's also arrived home in time for a political shake-up. A coalition of nations were once again warring with Republican France. Now, there were a few victories, but the country was essentially broke, and the government running the place was deeply disliked. Funny enough, Napoleon was ordered to return home from Egypt to help fight on the French border, but since he'd already fucked off, he actually never got the message. Um, so by the time he gets to Paris, luckily for him, things have improved a little, but um, <laughs> the government was like, uh, where were you? And he's like, oh... Uh, I was on the way because <laughs> he just never got the message. So he didn't realize he had to go straight there. He ended up going to Paris where it's not where he was supposed to go. So they were deciding whether they were going to discipline him or execute him uh, for desertion. But um, kind of like in the movie when he's like, you're not going to do anything. That's literally what mm. happened. He sits and he's like, you realize you're the most disliked government right now. And you want to try and kill or discipline the most famous general in france right now like don't be don't be silly here so they just didn't do anything at all <laughs> you know you're powerful though when that happens like you can literally just tell the people running the country nah, I'm, I'm out and just walk out of the room no yeah for sure it's the it's the whole kingmaker thing isn't it like you always want to be the kingmaker not the king and those oh, are the ones yeah. that are powerful who have the, the the people on their side oh do you know what on a side note read machiavelli please everyone read machiavelli and learn like don't be the king, be the kingmaker. Uh, be pally pally with your boss, but not that pally pally. It's so like. Yeah, and be willing to chuck him under the bus at a minute's notice and get someone else in. <laughs> or, or argue back against them and then get a telling off. <laughs> yeah. Now, the conditions of the time were ripe for a coup d'etat, and Napoleon was going to make the most of it. It's 1799, and an influential political figure named Emmanuel Joseph Sier is plotting. 
He's gathered a group of guys together who all believe that France would be better off if the government was overthrown and a new one was formed ran by him. But alongside CA is a guy called Roger Roger De, Deco, I think. Roger, Roger Deco, Joseph Fouché, and Napoleon Bonaparte and his brother Lucien. Now, the plan for the coup is almost like an Ocean's Eleven movie. It's quite interesting. Now, I'm not going to get into how the French government at this time worked because it's very convoluted, which is part of the reason as to why it's so ineffective and why it failed. But basically, there are too many people at the top. There's at least like five different people running at the top who have to then decide what happens. And it's like, nah, there's too many chefs here. We need to move on. Um, they realise that what it needs is a trimming down. So, CA wants to be the main guy in charge. He wants to be surrounded by Roger Ducot and then Napoleon. So then between the three of them, they would have what is effective, um, like one guy who's effectively running the day-to-day, -day, coming like the home office, you know, he sort of manages that. Uh, in Napoleon, yeah. you've got a guy who's going to run the military, then we can just leave it at that. And then CA, the guy at the top, kind of just says, all oh, right, yeah, cool, fine, yeah, give me the paperwork, I'll just sign it, we're all good. It should be a nice and effective government. Pretty straightforward. Right, now for the execution of the plan. It's the morning of November 9th, 1799. CA and Lucien Bonaparte warned the sitting government that there was a coup about to happen and to protect them all they need to leave and take refuge in a palace called St. Cloud. I think it's pronounced something more French than that but it's how it's spelt. St. Cloud. St. Cloud or something. St. Cloud. Yeah, Cloud. I know what you mean. Anyway, what the, what the politicians don't know is that it was the very people warning them that there was a plot the ones carrying it out they then told them that uh oh by the way napoleon's gonna be there he's gonna have an army there but don't be worried like he's there to protect you from the threat that's definitely not us uh, so just go there to saint cloud everything's gonna be fine now once all gathered napoleon walked in and set out his argument that the government needs an overhaul and just as an aside, I quite like the idea that all these politicians are sort of just standing around the building, not necessarily realising that Napoleon's still involved at this point. Like, he comes in and goes, right, mm. we need to downsize the government. And they're like, Napoleon, not now, there's a coup. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I know, I'm, I'm part of the coup. And they're like, no, 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 Napoleon, you're here to protect us. And he just like, I don't know, puts on a fake moustache and some glasses. And they're like, oh, no, it's you, you're involved. Anyway. He manages to convince some of the guys that the government needs an overhaul and that he, alongside CA and Ducot, will be taking over. Now, the rest are not as receptive to the plan, so they try to attack Napoleon with daggers. Um, a few punches are thrown. Napoleon dashes out of the palace with his brother, Lucien, and together they then convince the army of soldiers waiting outside that the men inside are trying to kill Napoleon. So loyal to their general, they storm the place and convince the men inside that Napoleon and his coup is a good idea. And when I say convince, I mean they pointed guns at them until they said it was okay. Yeah, so this is a good idea. Yeah. You will comply. I have to admit, going back to the movie, that's a really good scene when he sort of he walks back in with all his soldiers. He sprints out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he sprints out I that was and he falls down the stairs and it's really good. 
to be fair, it's nice to know the actual history because when when I watched that blind, I was like, oh, he's a little bitch there. But it's nice to know that. It oh, bro, happened. they had knives. They were going for him. Like it's like Caesar kind of vibes, and he just gets yeah. the shit out of there. Got with his brother, and 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 this is genuine as well. In the movie, they they portray it quite well. Lucien says to the guys, he goes, "I'm telling you now, if my brother stood right next to me now, was one of these plotters trying to overthrow the government, I would take my dagger out and kill him myself." Like just trying mm. to call their bluff. Um, and then, yeah, they just walk back in and then he's like, right, should we vote now if I should be in charge? It's quite a good moment. Yeah. So the government is to start. So the government is dissolved and C.A., Duco and Napoleon are declared three consuls who will run France. Except there was actually a coup within a coup, a coupception, you might say. Napoleon didn't really want to be one of the three guys in charge. He wanted to be the guy in charge mm. so responsible for getting the paperwork drafted that would make the three men consuls napoleon just added in a couple lines here and there and took out a few others which <laughs> meant what was left gave napoleon the most power of the three and essentially made him the first and only consul and then the other two would just have a title in all but name uh, and they really wouldn't be as powerful as him. And he fully just played a blinder. There was just almost nothing they could do about it because as well, you might wonder how he was able to do this because they're all three quite powerful figures in this political world. But it's this, the answer is the same answer throughout history. He who controls the military controls the whole battlefield. Like, you know, he, he, he yeah. just decides, ah, we're not going to do that. So, yeah. Now, by the 25th of December, 1799, Napoleon is officially the first consul of France. He was so powerful that one could say he was the OG of the dictators. Almost everything went through him as first consul. But not wishing to be seen as a dictatorial muscle man who only gained and maintained power through force, Napoleon decides to hold a referendum asking the people what they want. Which surprised me. And then we I all know out, about referendums. Yeah, and then I figured out what happened afterwards, and I was like, oh, yeah, no, that mm -hmm. makes sense. Now, the conclusion of this referendum, three million people voted, apparently, in favour of Napoleon, with only 1,567 people voting against. Now, that's a success rate of 99.9%. It's quite a good going. That's a bit of a landslide. Bro, even Putin doesn't have that kind of balls to run a, a, a fucking election and say, oh, I won with 99%. <laughs> like, no way. Just Kim Jong-un Kim Jong probably does, doesn't he? But he probably gets 100. You definitely don't get elections over there. <laughs> no, but they say you do. But, like, you have to at least make it look somewhat legit. Do you know what I mean? Like, give the people yeah. some hope. Now, it is widely agreed upon that the 3 million is just not the real number. It was probably like 1.5 million. And then it's artificially inflated by uh, Lucien, Napoleon, uh, Lucien Bonaparte um, to make it look a bit better. But regardless, yeah. Napoleon is not only first consul of France, he's been elected by the people to stay in that position. So he is sorted. Now, a military man at heart, his first concerns were not how do I get the economy back up and running? Or how do I feed my people? It was more about how do I beat France's enemies in the field? Now remember, there's a war raging on the continent against France. If they were to lose, the monarchy-led nations would reinstate a king to the throne of France, the revolution would be done, and Napoleon would be out of a job, likely killed. He's now not only fighting for his republic, but his own life. 
Now, in the spring of 1800, Napoleon marches his army through the Swiss Alps into Italy. Now, if we remember from our last episode, Napoleon was a baller in his Italian campaign, sweeping away the Austrian and Piedmont armies. But while in Egypt, the Austrians made a comeback, taking vast swathes of Italian land. Napoleon swaggers back into the Italian peninsula as the official head of state for France. He's oozing with confidence, and with an army at his back, there ain't nothing that's going to stop him. Now, the easiest way for the French army to enter Italy was from the west, along the coast, and everyone knew that, including the Austrians, which is why they were kind of expecting that to happen. But Napoleon took a risk that almost didn't work, but he went for it anyway. He decided to go through the Alps, like Hannibal, and enter Italy from the north. And it was such a good plan that when Napoleon's army got into Italy, they didn't see anyone for ages. Because nobody was Mm. expecting them to be there at all. They were just wandering around being like, where the fuck is everyone? (laughs) Yeah. So eventually they stumble. And I mean this. They actually just sort of stumble across the Austrians. Almost no one knew where each other was. And they just like, oh my shit, there's Austrians. When they finally (laughs) met the Austrian army, there were 6,000 more men compared to Napoleon. So that's, you know, the numbers ain't good. And the Austrians at the start had the early advantage. So the Battle of Marengo had started. The Austrian army were able to push the French back and they were doing really well. Uh, But then they got overconfident. So the Austrian commander, a guy called General Milas, or Milas, convinced that the battle was a done deal, just decided to go home and leave early and he was he says to his generals he's like you got this right like you can you can finish up here it's pretty much done isn't it i'm gonna go home because you know my wife's got dinner on and they went oh yeah sure yeah this is fine uh he would never leave a football match early oh god yeah you never know what can happen in like the 92nd minute um he uh yeah he decided to leave early and he would live to regret that because the French army may have been retreating this entire time, but their lines had never broken, right? Napoleon was riding up and down the lines on his horse, literally screaming at his men, motivating them to just keep up the fight. They could win this, and they fucking did. With support from artillery and a series of strategically timed cavalry charges, Napoleon's army were able to defeat the Austrians, leaving 14,000 casualties on the field. Now, when you lose half of your army in a single battle, you start suing for peace really quickly. Mm. So the next day, an initial peace talk was held where Napoleon granted safe passage to the rest of the Austrian armies throughout Italy. And then he was like, right, this peninsula is mine. Get out. But as soon as the Austrians got back on home soil, they started to get all biggie big bollocks again. Now, Backed by the British, they refused all future peace talks with France and denied all their claims to Italian territory. And I can just hear the sigh that Napoleon let out when he heard this news. Like, you've absolutely Mm. demolished your enemies on the field. They're running away with their tail between their legs. And then as soon as big old Britain just stands in front of them, they start getting bigger again. You know when, like, your pals stood in front of you, like, come at me, come at me. But your your friend is still in front of you. You're like, right, well, you know. It was like that. (laughs) And I bet he was just like, what do I have to do? Do I have to beat you again? Like, (laughs) so... 
it, it genuinely seemed to maybe have pissed Napoleon off because what he does is quite funny. He decides to send one of or a couple of his generals with an army to just basically sweep through Bavaria, which is owned by Austria, to just destroy anything you see. Any Austrians fucking do it, just destroy them. And they smash it, just making the Austrians sue for peace properly this time because they've just gone through and just destroyed everything, just beat them all to a pulp. And I find that quite funny. Now, with the Austrians put back in their box, Napoleon does something surprising. He makes peace with Britain. Now, it's a tenuous peace, but peace is peace. Now, the Treaty of Amiens was genuinely brilliant for Napoleon's France. The British recognised the French Republic as legitimate, which also legitimised Napoleon on the world stage. It was now okay for France's recent territorial possessions and the UK was it the UK at that point? It doesn't matter. Uh, I think it is. Yeah. Anyway, Britain then understands that France may want to have more colonial possessions going on around the world because everyone else is kind of getting involved and we're friends yeah. now. So, yeah, fair. Go have another African country and just brutalise it. Go for it. Now, <laughs> Britain also conceded recent colonial possessions. Things like Gibraltar, right? They were like, oh, okay, fine, 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 fine. We'll, we'll, we'll get rid of Gibraltar because, you know, it's a really strategic part on the Mediterranean. It's the gateway to the Mediterranean. We'll give up this really strategic position. They they did not. They did not give up yeah. this very strategic position. Still got it now. We still have it today, which is, which during Brexit was quite hot. <laughs> mm. Now, there was an ambition to embark on a French empire in the Americas, which is quite cool, because I don't know if you realise that at this point, France still owns a lot of America. Yeah. And it's got some areas in the uh, Caribbean as well. So the French had supported American independence, and arguably without it, Napoleon would never have come to power. But it owned vast swathes of Northern American continent and some Caribbean islands. Napoleon was keen to expand this, but would require that would require manpower. So Napoleon reinstated slavery in the French Empire, which, ugh, like that's never a good look, is it? Yeah, considering you're one of the first uh, big nations to like abolish slavery, and then you mm. reinstate it, like knowing that it's yeah, a negative that's, that's... thing. And Napoleon was like, hideous. yeah, let's let's bring that back for a little while. That'd be good. Also, France had this really weird relationship with slavery. We mentioned earlier in the first episode, second episode, um, that Josephine, when she was growing up in the Caribbean, had slaves, right? But France's, uh, France's like, slavery laws were really tricky. You could have slaves basically anywhere else around the world. But in France, everyone was to be free. So there was no... Like, you couldn't have slaves on mainland France. Right, so okay. that was kind of but their you could deal. on, like, the islands. Yeah, so when they say they abolished slavery, it's like, well, yeah, on your home soil because you don't want to see it. It's a bit icky. Yeah. So he also sent men to put down a slave revolt in Haiti, but famously failed. Now, with that, he decided that he couldn't be asked to deal with the Americas. It really wasn't a world that he knew. He knew Europe. He warred in Europe. And he's damn well good at it. So he's going to focus all of his attention in just dominating Europe. So this, funny enough, is what led to the famous Louisiana Purchase. Just because Napoleon couldn't be asked. Really? <laughs> yeah, he was like... Oh, uh, do you know what? Like, sending all these fucking men 
on boats, and I don't really get boats. I'm not a Navy man. You know that. I'm a military artillery guy. I don't really get boats. You're going to spend, what, how long sailing across this big old pond just to fight over that? Nah, it's not worth it. I'm not doing it. <laughs> so, Napoleon sold all French-owned land in North America to the USA for £15 million, which in today's money is like 350 to £400 million. For that massive Crazy. part of basically Midwestern America. Like yeah. a billionaire could buy America three times over and more. Now, side note, and I find this quite funny in my mind. Um, the Louisiana Purchase is, is genuine, I think, quite hilarious. The USA went to Napoleon initially with $10 million. And all they were asking for was to buy the port of New Orleans. New Orleans. I keep, oh, every time I say New, New Orleans, I want to say New Orleans. <laughs> That all they wanted to do was buy New Orleans, the port. That was it. Not even like all, all the round area around it. They just wanted to buy the port for two million, uh, for ten million, so that they could start bringing stuff in because America's quite big, right? Anyway, the US go over there and they're like, "Look, here's some money." And France, <laughs> Napoleon, who's like genuinely pissed off over this defeat in Haiti, is just like, "Bro, do you know what? Fuck it. Take all of it for fifteen. I don't care." <laughs> and then America's like, "What?" <laughs> anyway, he's like, "I'm done with your shitty continent. Don't want nothing to do with it. Just fucking buy it. Take off my hands. I'm done with it for fifteen mil." So the USA, who don't have that much money at this point in time, they have to go to British banks to get their money out. So they basically take massive loans from British banks, their old enemy, right, to Mm. pay to basically double the size of their continent. But because of this, they already don't have enough money. So not only have they loaned loads of money from British banks, they had to severely reduce their military budget to afford this, which is genuinely funny. So British banks have American money uh, that's then given to France, who would then later use that money to f- fight a war with a Britain. And in the meantime, mm. America has like made its military so poor that by when the time of like eighteen twelve comes along, and there's the War of eighteen twelve when Britain is fighting America again, we straight up just went in there, burnt the White House, and then just called it a draw. But because America just like like made its military very very weak to pay for this, and we paid for it basically, I find it quite funny. <laughs> Now, Napoleon set up a secret police to hunt down those that opposed his rule. He limited journalists and arrested those who had any anti-Napoleon thoughts. He also survived many an assassination plot, which further pushed his want for a secret police. Interestingly, he reinstated religion. Now, if we hark back to part one, the revolution banned religion in France, seeing it as part of the oppressive class that backs people like Louis XVI. Napoleon is an atheist, he doesn't really care for religion, but he knows that a lot of French people are Catholic. He thinks that by allowing the church back into France, it will be a great PR move for him, and it is. People will love him for it. Naturally, the Catholic church has the wrong end of the stick when it comes to allowing them back. They think that they're coming back to then start telling him what to do, completely unaware that this is he's not their ally. Like He is not a friend. He is allowing yeah. you to be back he's giving you this privilege and it is a privilege he will take it away at the drop of a hat he all he wants the church to do is help to keep the people in check for him and the church kind of goes with it now we'll see later on a little bit uh, napoleon's disdain for religion when he becomes the emperor now basically he was a proper dictator now controlling the thoughts and words of his populace and rigging referendums 
Despite being shit scared of the public's revolutionary feelings, remember the revolution kicked off the terror that lasted for the best part of 10 years just lopping people's heads off every day. Now, uh, uh, Napoleon knew that he needed to keep the people happy, otherwise they might do the same thing to him. So he keeps giving them this sense of a republican democracy that they fought for. So he gives them referendums all the time on this, that, the other to make them feel like they're involved, when in reality Napoleon is just rigging all these elections which is present when there's another referendum that says would you like to have napoleon as your consort for life and they're like mm. yeah okay cool so he's then made emperor in all but name until another referendum when napoleon is elected officially as the emperor of france with again a 99 percent approval of the move which is Good going. Suspicious. Yeah, nobody saw that coming. On a real though, you have to wonder, why would they accept an emperor when they'd already taken off the head of a king? Like, it seems like uh, you've mm. taken two steps back at that point. But the answer is that Napoleon is seen to be not like the rest. He's a military man that does nothing but win. He's of the people, he gets them, he allows the people to vote... He is there because the people allow him to be there, or so they think. They would rather a man who they trusted to be there, who they've elected to be there, who is competent, rather than just have some dickfuck for 30 years who's just shit. Yeah. Who also takes the piss. Now, on the 2nd of December, 1804, Napoleon Bonaparte is crowned Emperor of France at Notre Dame. He wears a golden laurel wreath emulating that of the Roman emperors like Caesar, and he also has a crown of Charlemagne held atop of his noggin, although nobody at the time really knew it was a replica. Now, I mentioned about this disdain for the Catholic Church. So, France is predominantly Catholic, and the Catholic Church has coronated all kings and emperors like Charlemagne in France. So, with basically, without their say-so, it's kind of a hollow title for a lot of people. And Napoleon knows this, but that's why he decides to have the church in attendance in the form of Pope Pius VII. He's like, yeah, you're going to show up. I need you to show up. You're going to sit here and you're going to keep quiet. And so he does. So when it gets to the point where um, traditionally the Pope would then lay the crown on the head of the emperor or the king and then proclaim him to be so, uh, Napoleon was like, no, 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 bro, sit the fuck down. I'll do it myself. And so he crowns himself. And then... Now he's crowned, he's above God, as a godly emperor, he then goes on to crown his empress, Josephine, who, remember, not too long ago, a few years ago, was in the papers because she was banging someone else. Uh, and it was yeah. all over the newspaper. And they're like, bow down to your empress, Josephine. <laughs> now, let's take a second to see how far we've come, okay? Napoleon is born from a minor noble family on the island of Corsica as a French subject. Um, he's forced to go to a French military school, doesn't speak a word of French and has to learn it, but then is bullied by all the kids because he's got a really weird accent. He uh, fights at the Battle of Toulon, where he makes a name for himself as a competent commander. He quickly makes friends in the right places and has success in his Italian campaign. This wee boy from Corsica, whose first language is Italian, is now the Emperor of France, and I think that's pretty cool. Is quite a big rise to to stardom what's interesting and i don't really know where this comes from but napoleon gets a lot of um comparisons to hitler and i don't really mm. know why but i, would I mean argue... you say that as you were 
reading stuff out earlier, you said he banned press about him. Uh, well, so like you listed off loads of things that every single one of them could have been applied. Oh yeah, but um, to Hitler. In that way, he and like I say, he's the OG dictator. He's the first of a long line of dictators. He makes it, it, it sounded like fascism. Yeah, 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 and that's fair. He is the OG when it comes to dictators, and all other dictators have you know almost used that as a model. But I. If we're going to use that comparison, I would argue that Napoleon's rise is better than Hitler's. Like, it for in a in a strictly, you know, God, this is dangerous ground. Now, I was I was very close to just backing Hitler, which is a weird place to be. <laughs> You're like, no, his rise was much better. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, uh, no, <laughs> we can probably have this conversation a bit of a better way. Um, but like, at least Hitler like kind of spoke German. Do you know what I mean at the time? Whereas like. Napoleon did, is now yeah. the but emperor I was, of a country that he had to learn the language. I guess the similarities are as well that obviously Hitler was not German, so both men have gone on to rule countries that they are not natives of. Um, I suppose there was one thing from our Hitler episodes that we did that always stuck with me was when there was a, a hotel in uh, Vienna in Austria that Hitler used to sweep the stairs of when he was a, a boy, and then as the dictator he went back and then stayed at that hotel. And I think that sums up his rise to power. I'm not backing Hitler by any means, but let's just say both men started from nothing and rose to become very powerful. Yeah, no, it... Uh, yeah. I, I, it goes to show what happens when you have a very strong secret police on your team. That does help. It does help. Now, um, <clears throat> we've got a lot of ground to cover still, so I'm just going to shoot through some bits. Um, in terms of domestic rule, it's not really Napoleon's bag. Uh, he isn't that interested in it. His main claim to fame is the Napoleonic Codes, although not all written by him or for his reign, they are ratified under his rule, and he is a supporter of most of these. So in short, the revolution was opening Pandora's box, but how do you close it once it's open? This is a serious problem that previous governments had. The Napoleonic Codes were an answer to stop the revolution and put it back in its box, and it mainly standardised things like citizenship, family and poverty. So some of these laws and codes covered finances, mortgages, taxes, all across France, but it was the citizenship and family codes that were a bit weird and even for the time shocked a couple people. Um, in particular, women's rights. Okay, So women's rights under Napoleon tanked. All women, once married, lost all all rights to pretty much everything, and I mean everything. All claims to property were now in the husband's name. All of her wages were now her husband's money, who he had control over. They lost all rights to their children. Children were the property of the husband. If the husband was to, like the husband had final say on everything, like school, discipline, all this kind of stuff. If the wife and the pet, like if the wife ever left. The kids stay with the dad. Like, that was the deal. Mm -hmm. The man had everything. The man. <laughs> you had an accident. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> now, um, as property of the husband, there was also no such thing as sexual assault or rape in Napoleonic codes. The husband was entitled to everything. If your wife cheated on you, she's going to jail. <laughs> Fucking hell. Yeah. Men, however, as long as you don't bring your floozy into the marital home, you're fine. If you do bring your floozy into the marital home, you get a fine. That's it. Whereas your wife goes to prison. God, he was harsh on the women, wasn't well, he? Well, I can't help but think that these are all rules for women. Um, I, I can't help but think that all these rules for women are just Napoleon's way of getting back at his wife. 
<laughs> like he's... it does seem like it doesn't it it seems very bizarre for this man who's so romantic and is so in love to suddenly impose all these rules yeah, like... he's done it out of anger and jealousy and spite yeah he's just not over it at all because that says to her that if you do this again you're going to jail yeah like, I, I remember what you did and now all women have been punished because of what you did yeah 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 but none of this applies to me like, this is fine <laughs> yeah yeah i can i can fuck around that's fine now, there were some good things from the Napoleonic Code, such as schools, higher education. Lots more people were becoming educated, which is good for a country. More brain power means more people can innovate and solve problems and make the world better. And like I say, domestic rule is really not Napoleon's vibe. War is. He said himself that he felt most alive when on the battlefield. So lucky for him, the next 10 years of his life would be full of battles. So let's talk about some of them. In 1803, after a year or so of peaceful relations, Britain declared war on France. Why? Well, because Britain got FOMO. Britain may have <laughs> <laughs> Britain may have been a global superpower, but it also liked to be treated as such by its neighbours. Britain claimed that France was starting to make deals with other European nations and was leaving Britain out. France is also apparently making claims that, you know, oh, Britain's got no business being in European affairs. It's just some shitty little island off the coast. It's not actually European. We'll leave them out. For that reason, and I am massively simplifying, Britain decided that France was no longer being a friend and declared war. Now, for Britain, the thing with warring with France is you really don't want to do it on mainland Europe. Britain's power is in the sea. Its army wasn't nearly as impressive as its navy, and it wouldn't stand up too well in a land battle on European soil on its own. France also knew that a battle with Britain at sea would be a stupid idea, so instead a tit-for-tat ensued, followed by a stalemate. I quite like this. Um, someone made a uh, sort of um, a reference for this, and they called it the whale against the elephant. And I was like, oh, that's mm. clever because they can't fight one another because one's stuck in the water and the other one's stuck on land. And they're like both yeah, mighty they're both animals. Very powerful. They're both very powerful, yeah. mighty animals that just, in reality, just aren't going to fight each other because they just know that it's just not doable. Like th- Their strengths don't yeah. match and weaknesses don't match. Now, as war was declared, Britain seized all French and Dutch ships in British ports or sailing near the coast, holding them as prisoners of war and then taking all the stuff that was on board as well, because they were like, oh, money, money, give it to me. (laughs) The French then, in retaliation, declared that all British males aged 18 to 60 were to be arrested and held as prisoners of war, which is kind of a smart move, except for the fact that all the French could capture was just really rich people who were just on holiday in Europe. (laughs) Oh, a bad time to be abroad. It's really a bad time to be abroad because when you think about it, right, they're thinking, oh, we'll, we'll capture all these people and they can't be conscripted into the army. And then the British are like, now nah, you don't realise all of our cannon fodder can't afford to leave the country. They're all here, mate. Like, it's all good. Yeah. Battery farm is still <laughs> open. Now, this is nowhere near as important as seizing ships that have got loads of things on board. Now, after this stalemate ensued, the third coalition was set up with Great Britain, Russia, Austria, Naples, Sicily and Sweden. Now, Napoleon had his whole army formed up on the coast with the intent of invading Britain. I don't know if many people know that. Napoleon was literally planning for a full-scale invasion of Britain. 
and the idea he had, the plan, because remember, he had to plan this in episode one. He was told, go plan this, because mm. they knew it was a dumb idea, but they wanted him to do it anyway, and he made a really good plan. This plan is a solid one. He knew there was no way he could get to Britain with the Royal Navy just hanging around the English Channel. Not doable. So, he needed to get them away. He proposed an idea to distract them for long enough that he could get across. A French fleet, alongside the Spanish would sail around the Spanish coast, coaxing British ships to follow them. You know, like waving a bit of ankle. Cool, come follow me. Yeah. Then they'd fuck off and sail around the Caribbean for a little while, being chased all the while before they made a beeline back. And this would give Napoleon time enough to invade. Except a massive sigh could be heard on the French coast when he found out that Austria and Russia had joined the coalition and were then attempting to form their armies and invade France. Can you imagine? He's on the coast and he's like, <laughs> we are, this is a good, this is great. And then they're like, oh, by the way, Russia and Austria have just signed up. Oh, for fuck's sake. All right, fine, fine. Yeah, <laughs> because the second you go to England, you're, you then lose France immediately. Exactly. He you knows he needs countries. to sort this out. Now, Napoleon has beaten the Austrians before. He's got no qualms with going to war with them again. He knows he could probably, like, smash them in a day or two. But if they were to link up with the Russians, that could be quite tricky for him. So Napoleon's plan was, I'm going to neutralise the Austrian army, then I'm going to have a go at the Russians. By that time, my plan with the navy should be in full swing, and then I can invade England and then be done with it. Fine, right, cool. Is everyone in agreement? Yes, right, let's go. Except... A 47-year-old admiral named Horatio Nelson, who, remember, has already embarrassed Napoleon once before when he obliterated the French fleet off the coast of Egypt simply because he could. (laughs) 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 I still find that really funny that he went, oh, fuck, there's a French fleet. Boys, blow that up. (laughs) But so so they haven't done anything. It's French. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, he just blew it up just because he could, right? He's about to fuck up Napoleon's day even more. So, the Battle of Trafalgar is ongoing off the coast of Spain. Now, I'm not going to get into it, but Nelson absolutely annihilated the French and Spanish ships winning the day. Unfortunately, he wouldn't live long enough to see the end of that day, but he won it. And I can just hear Napoleon going, oh, for fuck's sake, when he hears... Oh, oh by the way... <laughs> He's already pissed that the, the fucking Austrians and the French and uh, Austrians and Russians joined in. And then that happens. And, oh, give me a break. With his plans to invade Britain sink into the bottom of the sea, he decided to go all in with the land war. The Battle of Austerlitz, 1805. Now, there are some battles that lead up to this, but this is really the culmination of them all. And according to Napoleon, the greatest victory he ever secured. After a series of battles with the Austrians, Napoleon decided that he wanted to beat the Austrians and the Russians quickly in one swift move. So, he played possum. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. 
What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. He convinced his enemies that he was starving, his army was weak, he wanted to sue for peace, and the Austrians and the Russians fell for it. The area that Napoleon was in, Austerlitz, which is present-day Czech Republic, was a perfect landscape for the artillery-minded emperor. It's hard to describe a battle, so I will try my best. The area of Austerlitz has an elevated area to the west, um, some flatter plains going east with a big old hill in the centre of the battlefield, and then the, fair, the rest is fairly flat. Now, knowing that, the Austrian and Russian armies were coming to accept his surrender, so he kept up this game of possum. He made his right flank really weak looking in the hope that it might bait out his enemies, and it fucking did. They decided to use a huge number of men to just take this weakened flank. They're like, listen, this guy is canny. I'm not falling for his tricks. We're going to go in, we're going to destroy him whilst we get the chance, and then be done with it. <laughs> not realising they'd already fallen for his plan. <laughs> they also used smaller numbers to take the left flank and occupy the hill for the high ground, which is smart. We all know that the high ground's the one. But they'd been fully played. Napoleon did not leave his right flank completely alone. There was a reserve army in waiting, ready to join the fight at the right time. Napoleon and the rest of his army, under the cover of early morning fog, managed to retake the hill that Austria and Russian armies had taken, he now had the high ground and he'd actually effectively split the enemy in half. With the high ground taken and his cavalry absolutely killing it, the enemy had no choice but to retreat. One half managed to get away but the other half was surrounded on three sides by the French and their only escape route was south where a series of large ponds and lakes were. Now this wasn't a problem because the lakes were frozen over but Napoleon has cannon. He commanded the cannons himself, telling the men where to aim. They fired upon the fleeing army, cannonballs smashing up the ice, and hundreds of fleeing soldiers drowned trying to escape. It's a really good scene in the movie, though, I must say. That was a very cool scene in the movie, yeah. There's that one, like, I'm going to assume an Austrian Hazar uh, or something, where he's like riding the horse, he's got his flag yeah, flapping yeah, yeah. in the wind. That's so good. The result? an overwhelming victory that managed to capture more than 10,000 prisoners, around 16,000 killed or wounded, and two emperors who were begging for peace. This battle is called the Battle of Three Emperors. That's a really good like name for it. That's a cool name. Austria signed a rather humiliating treaty with Napoleon. Can you imagine like, Napoleon turning back up being like, Austria, man. How many fucking times? <laughs> Again. How many times do I have to keep coming over and fucking smashing you? Like, come on, bro. Like, yeah. <laughs> do you think it was like it's rules like on FIFA if you lose five nil or something in the first half, you've got to like send an apology letter? <laughs> yeah, right, an apology. Yeah. Austria is such a weird country. They're responsible for like a lot of the major wars that have happened in this world, and yet they go completely under the radar. They really do. They're really good at sort of like just World War One. If you think about it, it was Austria Hungary. They're completely yeah. there. Everyone blames Germany. It was fucking Austria's fault. World War Two, Austrian man. 
We need to keep a close eye on Austria. Austria is just, they're like machinations in the background. They're always thinking of something. And they're like, well, we could convince someone else to do this. <laughs> yeah, then Germany's like, oh, fine. fine. And then they get the bad PR. Well, and also that happened with the First World War, of course, because Austria uh, kind of started declaring war on people. But then Germany got blamed. Austria, yeah. Austria kicked it off. And Germ- Germany were the ones that were just like defending like their friend. Yeah. And it's their, oh, it's crazy. <laughs> now, um, Russia fared better in these negotiations. Uh, Napoleon allowed them to safely go home, but I just I don't want to see your faces around here again, kind of vibe. Um, and Napoleon had pretty much single-handedly dismantled the Holy Roman Empire, which really does look cool on your CV. Um, so <laughs> he'd managed to like establish a series of states in and around what we now call as Germany, right? And then that really pissed off the Prussians who were nearby, who were like immediately declared war on France, apparently not seeing what Napoleon had just done at Austerlitz. Fucking morons. Um, Anyway, Austerlitz pretty much stops the war of the Third Coalition. Look, to put it into perspective, and I don't mean to be like the movie where it's just like, oh, we're just covering over this, that and the other, because I'm sorry, you moaned about this in, in, in your voice note, and it's fucking relevant. He, he's in Egypt and he's like, oh, I, 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 I fought in Italy and I conquered Italy. And you're like, what, where, why, what, who, what? Yeah, when, when does this happen? Now, I, 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 I worry that that's what I've done or am doing. But I'm like, if I'm going to talk about it, I'm at least going to give you something about it. So you've got some context, I think, behind a lot of this stuff. Basically, what I really want you to do, though, if you can come away and take anything from this, if you're at a party and someone mentions Napoleon, not that many people mention Napoleon at parties, um, but if anyone ever did, right, you should like be able to go, oh, right, yeah, now I've got a little bit of knowledge about that. That's what I really want for people. Yeah. So I've got like this fucking weird, like, <laughs> yeah, I feel guilty. So like I was just saying, there are, there are five different coalitions of nations who try to put Napoleon down before the sixth one that actually does it. So forgive me if I don't go through all five fucking coalitions, <laughs> right? Napoleon is practically unstoppable, put it that way. He wins a lot of battles. No one can fucking beat him. They're all scared of him. So, at this point, he is the de facto ruler of Europe. What helps, too, is that he's installed his family as the heads of state in several European nations. So, he gives to his brothers the crowns of the Netherlands, Westphalia, Naples, and Spain. Um, and by the way, I'm not going to talk about Spain. I know there's a lot of beef with Spain. His, his brother is the king of Spain, and yet he still has beef with Spain. I'm not talking about it. It's not, it's too big. It's just too big. Back home, things aren't going so well for Napoleon personally. As emperor, thoughts of succession were in the minds of many. Unfortunately for Napoleon and his empress Josephine, no child was born of the two of them. There were many rumours why, but I think the answer is more of an age-related reason for Josephine. You see, she's six years older than Napoleon, and she's kind of mid to late 40s at this point. So I think that might give us an answer as to why she's struggling to have children. Because we know she can. She's got two from her first marriage. But she can't anymore. I just think it's an age-related issue. Because as well, we know Napoleon can have kids. Because he's got at least two illegitimate children running around. And one of them, at least, that he recognises. Oh, that whole scene in the movie where his mum's like... Oh look, Napoleon! There's a, no, there's, a, there's a nice virgin over here. Let's have you have a go and do a proper scientific yeah. test. Didn't happen. Not a thing. <laughs> now the lack of an heir meant that Napoleon needed to look elsewhere to secure his legacy. 
He wanted to be the first in a long line of Napoleons, and that wasn't going to happen if Josephine was still around. So, in 1810, he had his marriage to Josephine annulled. For Josephine, this must have been a completely embarrassing thing to happen. You're the empress. Like, there's not that many positions, ranks, titles higher than an emperor and an empress. And then yeah. all of a sudden, someone else can just take that away from you because you can't have a child. Like, that's harsh. Now, it is widely claimed that Napoleon still loved the bones of Josephine and would visit her often. Even afterwards, she had a nice a nice home to live in and was well looked after and all this kind of stuff. Um, kind of like a, a Henry VIII vibe where it's like, well, listen, you're just quite not doing the thing that I need you to do right now, so I'm going to go do the thing I want to yeah. do, but can I have you on the side? Except without the beheading stuff. <laughs> but he seemed to love Josephine, but he also loved himself and his legacy more. He arranged for a political marriage to the daughter of the Austrian Emperor, Marie-Louise. Let's just take a second to think about that, because I think it's really funny. Napoleon is just this wee lad from Corsica, who is now the Emperor, having lived through a really traumatic era of French history when they just killed their own king. Every single monarch in Europe sees you as mutton dressed as lamb, but they have to play ball because they're fucking... They're scared shitless of you, because they think you're the literal god of war. Then you get yourself married to the guy that you just keep battering in the in the field. That's quite funny. <laughs> like you keep like that's the thing, right? So you know what I was saying when he's like going Austria. How much more do you have to fucking do? He's just gone. Listen, just give me your daughter and we'll call it quits. You can't argue with me anymore. Yeah. I don't have to spank you every single time. Just give me your daughter. I find that hilarious that some wee lad from Corsica ends up marrying the daughter of an emperor. The decision works, though, right? Napoleon, with his new young wife, have a child, who Napoleon calls Napoleon Francis Joseph Charles, upon birth, given the title of King of Rome, which is really cool. <laughs> there was a very brief option for Napoleon to marry the sister of Tsar Alexander of Russia. Now, after Austerlitz, they got on famously, even kissed each other on a barge for all to see. Whoa. Yeah. And Napoleon once said of Tsar Alexander, quote, If Alexander were a woman, I would make him my mistress. That's a bit sus, mate. It's a bit sus. Alexander was said to be a very attractive, handsome man. And what's even funnier yeah. is that quote, that letter is a letter that he sends to his wife, Josephine, which I'm not sure she knew how to take when she read it, if she read it. Yeah, there's a guy here that... I'm, I'm not saying I'm gonna, but if I, if I could, I would. Yeah, I feel like there's a bit of that quote that was left out saying, I would make him my mistress. No homo. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's carry on. The British Prime Minister, William Pitt the Younger, said after the Battle of Austerlitz, roll up that map, it will not be wanted these ten years. And he was bloody right. Napoleon after Austerlitz was pretty much unopposed. Those that he conquered were playing nicely and the rest were too scared to do anything about it. Everything was pretty much under his heel, except for Britannia, which I feel like we need to cue the Royal Britannia. That needs to go on now. <laughs> Britain was standing on the cliffs of Dover with its trousers down, showing France its big old wang, and Napoleon hated it. He couldn't get to Britain, and he desperately wanted to hurt them. And if he couldn't hurt them physically, he'd try and aim for their wallets like he did with Egypt all over again. This time, though, he's got pretty much all of Europe to play with. Napoleon established a thing called the Continental System. Does that ring a bell to you at all? Nope. Okay, so the Continental System. No European nation is allowed to trade with Britain. That's it. Locked off. Shut. Doors closed. Can't get in. Can't get out. That's it. That's harsh. Yeah. 
The thing is, Britain's empire was so vast that it could pretty much just keep going without the trade, but it wanted to maintain peaceful relations with European rulers and would constantly tempt them with nice little trade offers if they were to go against Napoleon. Like, oh, uh, half price if you just come now. But when I say peaceful relations, Britain did actively sail up to Copenhagen in Denmark and just shoot the shit out of it for not for not buying their stuff. <laughs> <laughs> like, can you imagine the idea of going to the shop and they're like, you okay? And you're like, I'm just browsing. And then they pull out a gun and you're like, um... <laughs> anyway, after a lot of back and forth and little bits of temptation, Russia decides to start trading with Britain again. Napoleon, feeling betrayed by his Russian boyfriend, decides to punish him the only way he knows how war. Now, Napoleon's invasion of Russia is famous for the fact that it's a massive cock-up. It's Napoleon's mistake that transcends time. Everyone knows you don't invade Russia in the winter, you will lose. You know, uh, luckily for us, uh, Hitler and the Nazis didn't read their history books. <laughs> now, Napoleon with his allies managed to muster up an army of over half a million men. Now, these are some tremendous numbers. And they set off in June of 1812. I also want to mention this too. They set off in June in 1812 with supplies long enough to last them for 20 days. That's how quick uh, Napoleon thought it would be. He just... That's confident. Yeah, confident. He'd run up, do what he's got to do, beat their army in the field. Sir Alexander will capitulate like the Austrians always do every five minutes. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And that will be it, right? Hmm. Now, by this time in history, everyone knows what Napoleon is capable of. They know that meeting him on the battlefield is a fool's errand. Now, one thing the Russians have is space to manoeuvre. Now, in a move that is replicated for almost all of Russian history, when someone invades, they just back the fuck off and let the enemy walk in. But they don't leave you with anything. They've got a scorched earth policy. There will be literally nothing for you to use. Not even the ground will be capable of supporting your lives. And things came to a head at the Battle of Borodino, a place about a day's walk away from Moscow. Unlike his usual calm and measured tactics, Napoleon went for an unsubtle, brutal head-on attack at the Russian army. He was likely pissed at the fact that he was traipsing further and further into Russia and really just wanted this quick war with movement to crack on, and he just wasn't getting it. This battle is brutal. So much so that it would go down in the records as the greatest loss of life in one battle until the First World War. That's how many people died in this battle. It took the First World War to actually like creep up over those numbers. Yeah. Now, the Russians knew that the jig was up. What their intentions were with this battle, I don't entirely know. Maybe it was just to bloody the nose of the French and wind them up. Maybe they intended on hitting them often to whittle them down. But Napoleon had won this battle, but he'd almost certainly not won the war. He marched on all the way to Moscow, the political heart of Russia at the time, and nobody was there. It had been abandoned. Napoleon was perplexed, to say the least. He'd never seen this before. He'd taken one of the most important cities in Russia, and there was no envoy. There was no one there to offer surrender. In fact, he heard fuck all from Tsar Alexander. So, they waited. In Moscow. But time was not on their side. Winter was coming in, and Russia is famous for its brutal winters. Moscow had been razed to the ground by Russian forces hiding from the French, and Napoleon knew that he couldn't winter in Moscow. His men were almost all dead or dying, his horses were gone, 
cavalry soldiers were drafted into rifle regiments because there was just no horses to ride anymore. To stay in Russia would have been suicide, but to leave really wasn't that much of a better option, but leave they did, and it was horrendous. Winter came in quick. The men were so malnourished that they could hardly walk. It was so cold that many of the men froze in their sleep. Some of the men froze still standing. And there were reports of cannibalism amongst some of the men. It was horrific. Now, by the time Napoleon made it to France, the numbers were shocking. Of the over half a million men that set off to Russia, less than a 100,000 returned. So many died that Napoleon couldn't ride this one out. People were devastated at the loss. For the rest of Europe, they saw France on its knees and seized the opportunity. A sixth coalition of nations jointly invaded France and overwhelmed it. They offered deals for surrender, which would have kept Napoleon as emperor, but he stubbornly refused. After a series of defeats, due to him having a pathetic excuse of an army that after he'd left Russia, he saw the writing on the wall and asked for peace with the deal that he could still be an emperor. The Allies gave him a new deal where he could be the emperor, but he would lose all territory gained since 1798. Now, for context... Um, he fought at the Battle of Toulon when he's in his 20s in um, uh, 1793, right? So, like, pretty much everything mm. that he has fought for for the last sort of yeah. 20, 30-odd years, gone. His life's work. Yeah, your life's work, gone. He's like, no, get fucked. I'm not having that. I refuse. But his generals didn't. They knew that the end was here. They asked him to stand down, and he went, you can go fuck yourself. I've got the army, you're just the generals, what do you think you're going to do about it? And they're like, well, we're going to tell the guys what you want to happen without us, the generals. You can't talk to the entire army, can you? And he went, good point. Mm. And so he stood down. <laughs> Napoleon abdicated on April the 4th, 1814, naming his son Napoleon II, his heir, who would inherit the throne of France, be the king of Rome. And the Allies said, uh, no, you fucking don't, mate. Not having none of that, mate. <laughs> so, this is the bit that always confused me. Um, why did they not just kill Napoleon and then be done with it? Now, the answer to that is he held the title of emperor. It's, that is it, simply. No one wants to be the ones that went around and just killed emperors. Like That sets a precedent. You can't be doing that as a, as a, as a country, as a monarchy. You can't do that. That's not... No, no, no. They all have got a bit of class, you know. Instead, they allow him to remain as emperor, but he is no longer to be emperor of France. No, you can be emperor of, and then, you know, when they, like, cover their eyes, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, throw a dart at a fucking yeah. thing. You can be emperor of uh, Elba. Where's Elba? Don't care. Elba. You can be the emperor <laughs> of that. Okay, cool. So Elba is an island in the Mediterranean with 12,000 inhabitants. He would be their ruler. But not by his own choice, of course. Um, in fact, he tried to end it all. Uh, he had a capsule with poison that he tried to use. Um, this was left over from Russia. That's how much he's like fortified in the mind. Russia was so bad, but he was like, nah, now nah, I'm going to ride this out. But when he was mm. going to Elba, he was like, now nah, I'm going to end it. That's interesting. Uh, luckily for him, or rather unlucky, I don't know, uh, the potency had worn off since Russia, so uh, when he chomped down on it, it pretty much did nothing. I imagine it gave him the shits, but um, it, 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 didn't, <laughs> it didn't kill him. 
Now, what likely hurt too was the fact that Elba is only around 70 miles away from his home island of Corsica. In fact, it's about a day's sail away from um, Corsica. Not even a day, sorry. You can get there in a couple of hours, um, which is really, you know, I can't even be a, the, the, the king of my own home. Now, whilst on Elba, he tried to make it work for him. He established a small army and navy, developed iron mines, which was good for the small island. He oversaw construction of new roads and overhauled a legal system on the island. Now, this is the first time he actually sat down and just ruled. And to be honest, he's not that bad at it. But things took a turn for the worst when he learned that his beloved Josephine had died. He was seriously depressed, even locking himself away in his room for a few days. He didn't even have his wife and son to accompany him. See, when he was exiled to Elba, his wife, remember the young princess from Austria, she fucks off back to Austria, right? And then, um, like, falls in love with um, this young cavalry officer. And then it's just like, yeah, cool. I'm just, I've got a new hubby. Sorry. So Napoleon's proper alone. He doesn't have his son, doesn't have his wife. He's just on this island on his own, just a king, but no friends. Now, also remember, domestic life really isn't for our boy Napoleon. After 10 months as Emperor of Elba, he goes, fuck it, ditching this bitch, and manages to sneak off this island in a heavily guarded ship with his men. And then within two days, he's back on the island, back on French soil. Now this bit's mad. When Napoleon escaped, alarms went off. King Louis XVIII, who is the brother of Louis XVI, who, remember, had his head cut off in the Revolution, when he's told that Napoleon has escaped and he's on his way to France, fully just shits his breeches. Like He's like, no, I'm out, I'm out, I'm out. But then in two minds, he's like... Uh, no, okay, fine. I'm going to send a regiment to go and intercept him and just be done with it. Let's go, let's kill him. He's invaded, da da da. He's got 700 men. Like, come on, that's it's a substantial yeah. amount. So Napoleon with his 700 men, when they're met by this regiment, um, just, he gets off his horse. This is true. Napoleon just like, you know, bop, gets off his horse. Uh, supposedly sort of opens up his chest, like his, his cut jacket. And he says, here I am. Kill your emperor if you wish go for it and there was not a dry eye in the field the soldiers put down their arms and shouted vive l'empereur in fact the officer in charge of these men also put down his gun and then went i'm really sorry and then kissed napoleon <laughs> and then napoleon's kissing these guys a lot <laughs> he kissed napoleon <laughs> and then they marched together off to paris gaining more and more men as they went he's back baby <laughs> he's, he's back mm. now britain got the band back together one more time to have a go at napoleon a combined force of British troops finally on European soil and a Prussian army were on their way to smash Napoleon and his forces of 200,000 men. On Sunday the 28th of June 1815, Napoleon would meet his enemy in a place called... <laughs> his plan was to go on and split the Prussian and British army apart. The idea was if there was, like with the, the Russian and Austrian, if they was to meet overwhelmed can't do it i need to battle one then get the other and get it done quick yeah so he's having a go at the british right um and he meets them at a place called waterloo in belgium now the british were commanded by a man named arthur wellesley the duke of wellington he chose waterloo as his battlefield and james i feel like you would like the duke quite a lot because you and he seem to have a few things in common this is a quote um from the duke of wellington we have always been, we are, and I hope that we always shall be, detested in France. What a man. He stands for true British values. <laughs> he is. 
<laughs> he is uh he's proper yeah he's proper british he's like no i hate the french of course <laughs> yeah um this guy was a legit cool guy right he seduced two of napoleon's mistresses which i find quite funny um <laughs> he was calm and collected in battle famously saying at waterloo um when asked by a battered division to be relieved he said tell him what he asks is impossible he and i and every englishman on the field must die on the spot which we occupy he's like i don't go nowhere fair enough we're here man let's fucking enjoy it <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's also famously said that during the battle of waterloo lord uxbridge had his right leg shot out from underneath him by a cannon and at the time he was close to the duke of wellington and shouted over to him by God, sir, I've lost my leg. To which the Duke apparently replied, By God, sir, so you have. <laughs> <laughs> That's so English. It's so, I love it. By God, sir, so you have. You've dropped your tea. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the Battle of Waterloo is Napoleon's last stand. Uh, he tried to weaken the British lines by feigning an attack on a farm uh, at Wellington's right flank, but he doesn't take the bait. He's like, no, 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 we're here to stand here and just fight. That's it, I'm not chasing no one. After a while, Napoleon decides to send in his infantry, marching towards the British lines under, under constant rifle and cannon fire. They're unable to break the lines. A British cavalry charge manages to push them back, but then they get too excited and they get surrounded by Napoleon's army. They keep going. They're like, oh, we're winning. We're winning. <laughs> and it yeah. gets swarmed. One of Napoleon's generals thinks that he can see Wellington's right flank retreating, so he orders a huge cavalry charge, but he's wrong. Instead, the men are forming up into squares, taking a page out of Napoleon's book. The horses, of course, as we know from their fight against the Mamluks, will not go near squares. They just run around them. But then this means that all that's happening is the Brits are firing shots at them left, right and centre, and it's devastating. Now, it might seem that the Brits are winning this, but in actuality, they're not. They're just about holding their own. And that's the point. Remember, I said, Britain just doesn't really want to go onto European soil. It doesn't have the military for it. It's just that's not what it's built for. It was never a force that was supposed to beat Napoleon on its own. It was part of a joint venture with Prussia and others. It needed their support and quick. Luckily for them, the Prussians made it to the battlefield late in the day, which split Napoleon's strength. He got desperate. He's running out of men. He's decided to do something he hasn't done for a very long time. He decides to send in his elite Imperial Guard as his last-ditch gamble. 3,000 elite soldiers are running at the British lines under heavy fire. And the Brits fix bayonets and charge. And it's quite funny. They're beaten back almost immediately. Like, they do nothing. And I think... I'm trying to, I was trying to rattle my brain as to why. And I think the reason why is this. His elite Imperial Guard basically have done nothing for the last few years. Because they're this elite Imperial Guard, they're never needed. They just sit back and watch. I think they're just rusty. Mm. Now, with his final gamble a bust, the British and Prussian forces overwhelm the French lines. Napoleon makes a mad dash on his horse out of there. The battle is won and Abba have something to sing about. Now, Napoleon made it back to Paris, but public opinion was not on his side. He had no allies left. There was no coming back from this. 
he announced his abdication, wishing again for his son to be made the Emperor of France, and then he ran. He spent some time in the home that Josephine had lived in when she died. Maybe this was a moment for him to be close to her finally before he moves on. Um, eventually, he went on to the coast where he surrendered himself to a British ship, expecting to be treated with some sort of dignity on the 15th of July, 1815. And I think the reason as well, the reason why he went to the British is because he'd heard a rumour that the Prussians, the Austrians, everyone else, they wanted his head. Uh, and, yeah. and I'll be honest, he was never going to fucking survive that. So he went to the British because it's like, you guys have got a bit of class, you know? Yeah, we do. <laughs> now, like his treatment before, he was afforded the respect an emperor might expect. But he was also arguably the most dangerous man on the planet at this time. They wouldn't kill him but they would damn well make sure that he wouldn't ever be able to go back to mainland Europe again. Um, by the way, uh, you know that really good scene at the end when the Duke of Wellington walks in and they actually talk face-to-face -face yeah, for the yeah. first time? Didn't fucking happen. Not real. <laughs> it's right. a really cool scene, but it didn't happen. Hmm. Uh, the Duke of, uh, Duke of Wellington actually goes by the island... Uh, St. Helena, where Napoleon dies, and he has a look around mm. the house where he stayed bef uh, before he died, mm. but that's about as close as they really ever got, um, is on the battlefield. So, Napoleon is sent to an island um, called St. Helena, which is in the arsehole of nowhere. It's a tiny island in the Atlantic Ocean, a thousand miles from West Africa. It's a British-owned island that pr was primarily used for stop-offs on long journeys for like refueling the ship. Yeah. So he'd arrive on St. Helena in October of 1815. He was to be guarded at all times by 2,100 soldiers, a squadron of 10 ships which would constantly be waiting offshore in case he made any moves, and he was under the watchful eye of Governor Hudson Lowe, who apparently was not a big fan of Napoleon, just didn't really like him, wasn't that? He was like, I don't, I don't know why I have to treat you like this. He was treated with some level of respect when he first came to the island. Um, titles, servants, he dictated his memoirs, hosted lavish dinners, everyone dressed in uniforms around him. He loved it, almost trying to reenact his old life. Um, he did actually try to learn English for a few months, um, but he wasn't very good at it apparently, so he just gave up. Now, after a few months, he's moved on to a larger home. Uh, now, larger didn't necessarily mean better. It was a bit run down, it was drafty, it was rat infested, not very nice. Um, in fact, Napoleon complained that he was being mistreated at this point, um, which actually made it all the way to the House of Commons, where they debated, is Napoleon being mistreated? Um, and they concluded mm. that he wasn't. <laughs> Shocker. Now, after a few years on the island, his health was starting to decline. We now know that he likely had some form of stomach cancer. His existence on St. Helena was a depressing one. I imagine he would have preferred to have died in a blaze of glory, which might sound incorrect considering the fact that I said just you know, a couple of minutes ago, he fled the Battle of Waterloo when all was done. But I think yeah. the reason why is because in his head, he never knows when he's beaten. Even on hmm. Elba, he's not beaten because he can still flee with 700 men. He can get back and then that's when Waterloo happens. I think he thought after Waterloo... I'm going to go back to Paris, I'm going to reorganise, I'm going to do all this stuff. So killing himself at that point was like, no, can't do it. And so on the 5th of May, 1821, aged 51, Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte dies in his bed. It's said that his last words were France, l'armée, and Josephine. 
he was buried on St. Helena with full military honours. Now, over in France, the monarchy was re-established and Louis XVIII was brought back to sit on his fat ass for some time, and it almost seemed as though it had all been for nothing. What happened to the King of Rome, Napoleon's legitimate son and heir? Um, well, he was sent mm. back to Austria with his mother, who, as we say, got married to a cavalry officer. Um, he was warned against using the name Napoleon to refer to himself, even though it's his first name, so he chose a different name. And he basically was going to be a soldier um, in the Austrian military, but he would die in his early 20s from illness. Now, funny enough, there would be a Napoleon III. Remember that Napoleon married off his brother to his stepdaughter, Hortense. They had a son called Louis Napoleon Bonaparte, who in 1848 would become president of France and then emperor Napoleon III in 1852. So technically, Napoleon's step-grandson would follow in his footsteps. But our Napoleon would be moved on from St. Helena to Paris in 1840, where he lays today in a very impressive tomb. He was given a state funeral by the then King Louis Philippe I, and it's thought that between 700,000 to a million people lined the streets in honour of their once emperor. And there we have it. That's the life um, of, of our Napoleon. Talking We've done on. it. We've done it. I'm sorry, everyone. This is long. I'm sorry. But before we end, before we end, I thought I'd finish up with some fun facts because this episode was heavy, right? We've had a lot of ground to cover and we haven't, if I'm honest, even covered the half of it. Like I said earlier, we didn't talk about Napoleon and his beef with Spain, even though his brother's the king of it. So let's just have a look at some really quick fun facts before we go and, and have, some, uh, have a little laugh before we leave. So, number one, if Napoleon didn't like a lady's dress, it was said that he would, quote, accidentally spill his drink on it. So you had to then go away and change it. Classic move. It's classic, right? Uh, number two, he loved extremely hot baths because it said he had really bad hemorrhoids and the heat helped to soothe them. Nice. So he had really bad piles. And it's probably from all the really crap horse riding. Anyway, number three, apparently Napoleon absolutely hated cats. There you are. Oh. Number four, his favourite meal was roast chicken with fried potatoes and onions. So basically, what we can confer from that is Napoleon loves chicken and chips. Yeah, uh, exactly, exactly. And he would love onion rings today. Yeah. Uh, apparently, he liked to sing aloud, but was completely tone deaf. So you know he'd love a bit of karaoke. <laughs> I like that one. Yeah. So he wasn't that short. So in modern measurements, we always joke that Napoleon's short, blah, blah, blah. That's just because the British media is the best at roasting people. Uh, in modern yeah. measurements, Napoleon is five foot six, which is average height for his time as well. Five foot six, you know, so I'm six foot two, so he's quite short next to me. But yeah, yeah. even still, um, he's average height for his time. And lastly, so this is my favourite one. Do you remember Tarah? Yeah, 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 the man who ate anything. The man who ate anything and everything, probably a baby at one point. So, Tarah was around when Napoleon fought at the Battle of Toulon, which means that when Napoleon won the Battle of Toulon and he came back to Paris and everyone was like, oh my God, isn't it amazing? Look at this crazy general. The revolution's amazing. Tarah uh, would totally have been aware of him. He would have heard of him and yeah. just been like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's cool. Well done. <laughs> I find that really, you, mean, you know, I love this when like episodes, the crossovers. Collide, crossovers. Um, yeah. And, so, um, and Tarah died 
whilst Napoleon was in Egypt in 1798. So oh. even when that was kicking off and happening, Terrell would have probably been aware of it, heard about it in the newspapers, saying, going, oh, uh, um, our amazing general uh, Napoleon's over in Egypt and he's doing really well. And he would have read it and gone, oh, that's cool. Give me, give me another cat to yeah. eat. Then <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There we have it. Uh, Napoleon, part three, done, done. Never have to talk about that little Frenchman again. We know we never have to talk about him again. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, Christ. There we go. I'm so glad this is done, James. I, I can't lie. Um, it's it's yeah. been painful. <laughs> I hope you've all enjoyed it, though, everyone. I hope we've learned something. I hope we appreciate the work and uh, effort that's been put into this because I'm very unwell. Uh, <laughs> now, I'm, if, I'm, if I'm honest, I'm really excited now because it means we get to go back to true crime. Um, yeah, yeah, and proper episodes, proper episodes. Uh, yeah, you know, proper episodes. Now, um, now, uh, you've you've heard us mention it before, but if you if you um, support us over on Patreon, you get to vote on the episodes that we do, and everybody voted in the last round, and so the next episode is going to be on a Japanese man called Issei Sagawa, um, and mm-hmm. it's absolutely fucking wild. I'm telling you now, it's crazy that this story even happens and the way it happens. So that's now thanks to uh, backers on Patreon who voted for that. So look forward to that coming. If you would like to have a say on who we talk about in future, um, obviously we get sent lots of recommendations all the time. And for the most part, we, we, we put those out on, on Patreon for people to vote on. So if you want to have your say on who we talk about, head over to Patreon and you can follow us there and, and vote for who we talk about um, and get all of our episodes ad-free and a day before everyone else. So get ahead of the game. Um, so yeah, head over there, join us there, follow us on socials, follow us everywhere. Love you lots. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for sitting through that, James. That was long. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, we'll see you on the next one. Goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.